Our scripture text for today is Genesis 37. So if you'll turn with me there, please. It's a great passage of scripture. And let us stand for the reading of the word of God. Genesis 37. Beginning with verse 2. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves of grain in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even, even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still ha another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. And then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and we bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've moved from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. 
Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but don't lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the the coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood, and they uh, sent the coat of many colors and brought it to the father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to the grave in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. You may be seated. Come now to the tenth and last section in the book of Genesis. And each one of these sections has had some particular theme it's been trying to illustrate and describe. And the twin theme of this last section, which starts with verse 37 and goes through chapter 50, is on the providence of God and the consecration of of Joseph to God. Now this last section is called the record of the outcome of Jacob's life. What was Jacob's major contribution to the church and to the history of the world? Joseph. And so the whole section is largely about Joseph. 
And it's showing the providence of God, how God accomplishes his purposes in the most unlikely and unusual ways. God carried out his will in ways that you wouldn't expect. How in the world is he going to work this out? They've sold Joseph into slavery. How in the world is he going to be exalted into Egypt? And so the Lord uses these unexpected, sinful activities of the brothers to get Joseph where he wanted him to be the Savior of all of Israel's family from famine that was hitting the whole world. The second uh, motif that we see in this section is Joseph's sincere consecration to God. In every chapter, that's emphasized one way or another. God never criticizes Joseph because Joseph is a man who is totally consecrated to God, body, and soul in everything that he does. And no matter what happens to, his, to him in his life, nothing can cause him to turn from that consecration. Now, there's a third thing we see in this section. Not only the providence of God, not only the consecration of, of, uh, of Joseph to God, but we see Joseph as a type of Christ. You remember typology. A type is an event or a person in the Old Testament that God arranged his life in such a way as to remind us something about Jesus Christ. So you have a lot of types. We've seen a lot of types in Genesis. And now Joseph is this premier type of Christ. And if I were to tell you, just to put your baby. And if, I, <laughs> and if I were to tell you, uh, I'm going to talk about a man that was uh, rejected by men, was abandoned and left for dead, sold into slavery, and then raised to great exaltation to save his people from their sins, you'd think I'd be talking about Jesus. But I'm talking about Joseph. Because Joseph is the ideal type of Christ. When you look at him and study these chapters, you learn a great deal about the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember that throughout all, everything that happens to him. You're reading about a man who was meant by God to be a symbol and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, third thing. It's obvious throughout this chapter that Joseph's brother hated him. Here's a man that consecrated to God, goes through the worst of experiences for the sake of God's people, and his own family, his brothers, the church hate him so much that they try to kill him. And they hate him for two reasons. They hate him because of the preferential love of Jacob for Joseph. This says more than once 
that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And that caused all these other sons to hate Joseph all the more. And that's a good thing for parents to remember, that whenever you show preferential love to any of your children, it's going to create bitterness, it's going to create envy, it's going to create hostility in your family. I know my mother and daddy loved all my four sisters the best because I was always getting the spanking, <laughs> and they were never getting spanked. So avoid preferential love for one child over the other. That caused this hatred in Joseph's brothers. Second, they hated his dreams. They hated what he said he saw in his dreams. He couldn't stand it. He had two dreams. In one dream, he said, I saw your sheaves of grain bowing down before my sheaf of grain. And I saw the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down before me. Well, you can imagine how they took that. Now, uh, there's people who have slandered Joseph. They've slandered him through the years, and it makes me mad whenever I hear it. They say, well, this is just a young, zealous, arrogant boy bragging to his brothers all the good things that are going to happen to him and telling his brothers that they have to bow down to him. You know who thought that up, that slander? That Joseph was simply telling this to brag to his brothers that he's going to be better than they are. You know who made that up? Some parent who was too proud to think he could learn from his children. That's who made it up. Because there is nothing in the Word of God, nothing in this entire section whatsoever that leads you to believe that Joseph told his brothers his dreams in order to make himself look good. Nothing. You're reading into the text. This wasn't slander. Uh, this wasn't a guy that was uh, just saying things to uh, exalt himself over his brothers. This was his brothers rejecting the Word of God. This was his brothers. Joseph was a prophet. And what are prophets supposed to do? Prophets are supposed to preach what's in the revelatory dreams that God gives them. So Joseph was simply doing his duty. God had come to him in a dream and taught him some truth about the future of his family and how God was going to use Joseph to save his family. And he was just being a faithful prophet preaching the word of God to his brothers and sisters. After all, a prophet is without honor in his own country. And they didn't appreciate him. They didn't like the words he was speaking. And they were arrogant enough to think, let's get rid of him, let's kill him, let's put him in a, a well somewhere, and maybe he'll die of thirst. And then let's see where his dreams get you. Scary words when the brothers take on God's word. 
Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. And then we'll see what happens to his dreams. <laughs> oh, yes, we will see. And they all came true. So don't ever try to resist or overturn the revelation of the will of God. And when preachers of the gospel preach the truth, listen to them. Don't try to overturn their word. Don't try to run from it. And certainly don't reject it. But if it is, in fact, the word of God, do what it says. Believe what it says. What do these two, two, two dreams mean? Well, the first one, 11 sheaves of the brothers bows down before Joseph's sheave. That is, that Joseph is going to be the one who will administer the benefits of the covenant of grace when Israel goes through a rough and difficult time. He's the one that's going to provide for them. And boy, did that come out true. He's the one as the number two man in all of Egypt who saved up all the food and all the provisions. And if it wasn't for Joseph, these people would have starved to death. So the first one, now remember Joseph is a type of Christ. So the first dream, he says, uh, God has made me responsible for your welfare and to provide for you in times of difficulty to save you from death. The next dream, he says, well, let's look at it because he tells them what they're to do. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him. There was no reason whatsoever to rebuke him except for pride. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and, I and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And Joseph is telling them in this dream that the way they're going to receive the benefits of God's covenant and avoid the death of famine and slavery is by bowing down to the supremacy of the one who represents Christ. I want to be the one that's bringing salvation to you. I'm saving you from famine and from death. But to get in on those blessings, you've got to bow down before my supremacy that God has given me. You've got to bow down in submission to me and recognize that you are to obey me. He's not bragging. Joseph didn't think that up. That's exactly what God had told him. And boy, did they hate it. Now let's look at some little details of some people that were here. Reuben. The brothers hated Joseph. And they said, let's get rid of him. 
and then we can have our daddy's love, and then he won't brag all this time. So let's kill him. It's the church, by the way, talking. This is the church of God telling you it wants to kill the only person at the time who can save them from the death of famine. Reuben comes up, the oldest brother, says, let's don't kill him. Let's just put him in a well somewhere and then come back later and sell him the slavery. Or let's just put him in a well. Whatever happens, happens. Because it was Reuben's intention to come back later and to rescue Joseph from the well. Now, why is that little piece of information in this story? That Reuben was the one brother that says, let's don't kill our little brother. And he was the one brother that came up with a plan B so he could go back to that well and rescue him later that evening. How do you think we were told that about Reuben? Because we've already been told something about Reuben that would tend to prejudice against him. Reuben, the oldest son, had committed adultery with his father's wife. So after you read that story early on, you would be suspicious as to whether or not there would ever be anything good come from Reuben's life. Here's a man that committed incest with his father's wife. How can he be worth anything? Now we're told a second story. It shows that this man, who had a one moment of terrible weakness and wickedness, is really a man of conscience. And he wants to save his little brother from being killed. Now, there's a great truth for us to learn there, a great practical truth, and that is don't let one, uh, 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 when, a, when a consistently godly person in a moment of weakness commits a wicked act, don't let that one wicked act determine what you're going to think of him the rest of his life. Reuben was a godly man. He was a man of conscience. Reuben committed a terrible sin. But he did many right things. And many righteous things as well. So even godly people can slip and fall. Forget. David, a man after God's own heart, God said, was an adulterer and a murderer. So this little piece of information was put here in that Bible to help you see that Reuben is not quite as bad as you might have thought he was. And then there's another person mentioned here, Judah. And Judah 
is one of Jacob's sons, and he had a plan C. Notice what he says. He said, let's don't kill our little brother, Joseph. He's the 11th son. There's one, one other son after him who's Benjamin. So he's the 11th son. And Judah says, let's don't kill him. After all, he is our own flesh and blood. Let's sell him into slavery. I mean, if there were ever more hypocritic words by any mortal, it was by Judah. He is our flesh and blood. Let's don't hurt our little brother. Let's just <laughs> throw him in a pit, see what happens, and sell him into slavery. It was Judah. The great, great, great granddaddy of Jesus. There's nothing good said about Judah. I don't know anything good about him. And he's the great, great, great granddaddy of Jesus. You go through the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, and you will find that it's full of sinners. There's a prostitute. One of his ancestors was a prostitute. All kinds of wicked people in Jesus' genealogy to teach us that he came to seek and save that which is lost. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. And he was not afraid to identify with sinners so that he might bring them to himself. And then there is Jacob. And who's Jacob? He's one of the great patriarchs. And notice what it says about him. When Joseph told him the dream about the stars, the moon, and the sun bowing down before him, it sort of uh, insulted Jacob. Verse 10, it says, And he, that is Joseph, related the dream to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? How dare you say such a thing? And his brothers were jealous of him. But to translate this away, it, it could be translated in the New Testament with reference to Mary. But his father pondered all these things in his heart. What that tells me is that Jacob really did believe what his son was saying. It could be true. So he kept thinking about these things. So they send Joseph 
out to this pit. And they, uh, it makes a point of saying there's no water in the pit. It's a well. No water in it. You could very easily have died of thirst out there in the desert overnight in a deep well with no water. And so they come up with a plan. Let's sell him into slavery. You got these Ishmaelites, you got these Midianites heading toward Egypt. Let's sell him to them, make a little money on the side. And then we got to come up with some excuse. Got to tell our daddy something. So they came up with the idea, let's take this beautiful and expensive coat of many colors. Let's dip it in some goat blood. And then let's take it to daddy. And let's say, daddy, we found this out in the wilderness. It looks like the coat you gave Joseph. Is it? Look at it very carefully. Joseph said, of course. It is. They didn't care whether they broke their old daddy's heart. They didn't care whether they'd kill him by the information. They were just trying to get themselves off the hook. They had absolutely no affection for their daddy at this point. And so the daddy grieved so much for many days that he wears sackcloth and ashes and is inconsolable and cannot be comforted. They said a wild beast has probably killed him and eaten him. This is his father's favorite son, and you can imagine what he's feeling at this point in time. My life's over. I'll never be happy again. And even the brothers were worried about him because even they tried to comfort him a little. He was overwhelmed with grief. What tells me? He believed Joseph. Then why is he overwhelmed with grief? The Savior is dead. The one person that could save our family from death is dead. Now what? So he cannot be comforted. And there are times in a Christian's life when he may experience times like this. Things happen in his life that catch him off guard and nobody can comfort him anymore. That doesn't mean he's lost. That doesn't mean he's a weak Christian. That just means he let this grief slip up on him. Tell you what John Calvin said about this. About Jacob, who was this strong strong man. Jacob had... Prevailed with God. Jacob had wrestled with God. God had actually spoken to Jacob. Here was a man of strength. 
throughout his whole life. Now this one thing happens. It's a big thing. And it's completely broken. Here's what John Calvin said. Where was that invincible strength by which Jacob had even prevailed when he was wrestling with God? Where are the many lessons of patience with which God had tested him in order they might never fail? This disposition to mourn teaches us that no one is endued with such heroic virtues as to be exempt from that infirmity of the flesh which betrays itself, sometimes even in little things. Hence also it happens that they who have long been accustomed to the cross, like veteran soldiers ought bravely to bear up against every kind of attack, fall down like young recruits in some light skirmishes. Who then among us may not fear for himself when we see holy Jacob faint? after having given so much proof, so many proofs of patience. Nothing is more unreasonable than that of a holy man who all his life has borne the yoke of God with such meekness of disposition should now, like an unbroken horse, bite his bridle in order that by nourishing his grief he might confirm himself in unsubdued impetuosity. Angelic minds of holy men were thus darkened by sadness. How much deeper gloom will rest upon us unless God, by the shining of his word and spirit, should scatter it, and we also, with suitable anxiety, meet the temptation before it overwhelms us. If it happened to Jacob, it can happen to you. Don't think you're above being overwhelmed by grief. You know, at this point, Abraham's faith was stronger than Jacob's. <coughs> Abraham went through many tests, but he was stronger than Jacob's, uh, Jacob's faith. God told Abraham, your son Isaac is going to bring the blessings of salvation to all the nations of the world. I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. So Abraham takes his son by the hand. His son's in his teens. Takes the wood. Takes a knife. Takes something to start the fire with. Starts walking up Mount Moriah. Some of his friends meet him. 
and said, Abraham, where are you going? And Abraham said, my son Isaac and I are going up on this mountain to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and then we're going to come back down this mountain together. You see, he was confident that he was going to have to kill his son, but God would raise him from the dead. So God does provide a ram in the place of Isaac. And Abraham's faith did not waver. Yah, but uh, even though he saw all these things that seemed to contradict, how in the world uh, is my son going to be the granddaddy of the Savior and I'm going to kill him up on Mount Moriah? How in the world is that going to happen? Even though he couldn't understand everything he saw, he believed God. And he did what he was told. Jacob wasn't strong here. So here is a great story that has all kinds of points to it. Let's see if I've forgotten anything. Dreams. Others were jealous of him. You know what Joseph's intention was throughout this whole story and throughout the rest of Genesis? The conversion of his brothers. Go through all the stories here and you'll say, well, what is the point of this story? Joseph's trying to convert his brothers to Christ and to repentance of sin. Trying to kill him. They're slandering him. They're selling him into slavery. And the whole time he's trying to convert them to Christ and lead them to repentance. So you see how God's providence accomplishes things in the most unlikely and unusual ways. God even uses the wickedness of people to accomplish his purposes. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. This is talking about Jesus. Start with verse 23 of Acts, Acts 4. they had been released from prison, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is thou just make the heavens and the earth the sea and all that in them is, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David thy servant, did say, then he quotes Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, 
and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. What did Judas do that day he betrayed Christ? What God predestined him to do. What did the Jews do when they tried him so illegally and cried out for his death? What God predestined them to do. What did the Gentiles do that day as they cheered for Christ's crucifixion? What God had predestined them to do. What did Joseph's brothers do when they put him in that pit to die? What God predestined them to do. Can't escape the thought, can you? There's no way you can escape it. And so if you want to teach somebody about predestination and providence, go with them to chapter 37 through chapter 50. And you remember what Joseph said to his brothers. He wasn't mad at them, and to the end he was trying to convert them. He said, uh, Sell, trying to kill me, put me in the pit, sell me to people who can take me to Egypt. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, in order for the church of Jacob's day to be saved from death, Jacob, Joseph, had to be sold into slavery so he could get to Egypt. What had to be done to Joseph in order for the people of God in Jacob's day to be saved from death? He had to be humiliated. He had to be put in a well with no water so that these people could buy him and take him to Egypt because he had to be exalted in Egypt to the number two place in the government in order for the church to be saved. So here you see in this type of Christ, what were the two things that Joseph did to save the church from death? Deep humiliation. Deep humiliation and glorious exaltation. Who'd have thought it? How the world could sell a little brother into putting him in a pit and sell him into slavery, going to make him the number two man in all of Egypt, or maybe even the number one man in all of Egypt. Sovereignty of God. So Joseph experienced humiliation and then was exalted so that he might save his people.
And we see that in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, I think it is, where it says that he took upon himself the form of a, ser a servant and was made in the likeness of men and died a death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, they may have found the sarcophagus of Joseph. They found this sarcophagus. They don't know exactly who it was. There's evidence to think it was Joseph's. And whoever this was, his grandson was murdered. It was also a Pharaoh because he only believed in one God. And his grandson did not believe in the gods of Egypt. Well, we know that Joseph was bones were taken back to Judah and buried. But then eventually Egypt took over Judah. And there's every reason to believe that they would take the sarcophagus of one of their pharaohs back to Egypt. How powerful he was. Who would have thought it? Well, the rest of that story is you're no better than your master. And it's the way of the cross that leads home. And if you're going to get a crown, you've got to bear a cross. God's going to exalt you. You have to go through times of humiliation. So you see what the world's doing to the church. You see what the world's saying about you, particularly you. <coughs> Because you're a Calvinist, and the world hates Calvinists more than it hates anybody else. And it's slandering you. It's saying all forms of evil against you. It's humiliating your reputation. But you've got to go through it to get to the crown. Way of the cross. It's home. Spray. We thank you, Father, for all the things that we learned by this story, this very familiar story. We thank you for the unexpected way you got Joseph into Egypt so he could be the savior of his people. Pray that you would teach us to be like him. Every day to consecrate ourselves to you. Every day to trust in your providence. Every day to believe in and preach your word, no matter how foolish it looks in the eyes of the world. 
help us to go through whatever periods of difficulty, darkness, persecution, humiliation we need to go through. Get to exaltation. Victory. Thank you for the humiliation of Jesus and the glorious exaltation of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith in the living God.